can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We continue in the Gospel of John today. Lord willing, our verses will be numbers 11 through 18 of John chapter 20. Um, At this time, I'll ask you to go ahead and stand with me if you're able, and we'll read John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18 together. Beginning in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. You may be seated. Being seated, bow with me to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, O Lord, it is a sober occasion as we open your word once again. Sober because, O God, it is a fearful thing to speak to men on behalf of God. And I pray that you would meet with us now and grant clarity. And yet, in our soberness, O God, I pray that you would meet with us in such a way as we know we've met with you. Father, give grace. Lord, we come with sobriety, and yet I pray you would rid me of pretense. Lord, that the truth would be proclaimed and that the word of God would be heard in our hearts, that that would be a greater priority than proper or high and lofty speech, but that we would hear from you. Lord, we want to hear from you. I pray you would encourage us. Oh, Lord, shut my mouth from speaking things that aren't true. And I pray that you would give a great application of understanding. Lord, help us to see the meaning of these words and the intention that you have for us in hearing them. And oh, God, help us to see how these things really and truly impact us in a living way. Lift our eyes to Jesus. Let us see Him and exult in Him. Father, I pray for power. Not for myself or my sake, but for Your sake. Oh God, that You would meet with us. Let us us have an experience with the living God. Oh God, I pray all this in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You remember last week we began looking in the first part of chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, at the initial 
seen in the life of the disciples after Jesus rose from the dead. We saw Mary Magdalene going to the tomb early and finding the tomb empty, the stone taken away, and running and telling Peter and John, and then they return and they find the tomb empty. They find the linen cloths lying on the ground, and we saw the interaction between them. And I won't re-preach that message just to say that today we're returning to this scene. Evidently, Mary either returned immediately with Peter and John whenever they went to investigate or at whatever time frame this is taking place. Mary is once again at the tomb of Jesus. And before we begin expositing our text, and I do mean to and plan to exposit it in its context, I want to consider from the very outset and by way of introduction, some questions that will be relevant in our applications. I trust and pray that we will see how these things apply. The title of this message is Blinded by Grief. Blinded by Grief. And we're going to see that in Mary Magdalene. And surely as a Christian, you'll see how that applies to you. But I'm going to argue that though Mary Magdalene is a believer and a disciple in our text, that the grief which so blinded her from the truth is exactly the problem in the world around us. The reason that people do not see Christ is they're blinded by something. We might call it grief. We may call it passion. We may call it desire. Any number of things. But I hope to demonstrate this illustrates for us what is true. What keeps us essentially from seeing truth. Seeing reality. Seeing God as we ought to. And so I ask by way of introduction, what is the essential root of trouble in the world? What is it? What is the essential trouble? What has been the essential trouble in the world throughout the ages since the fall in Genesis 3? Why are there wars and hatred, sorrow and strife? There's been a lot of talk recently about the wars, the attacks going on between Israel and Palestine. And there does seem to be no end of explanations that are being offered. And I'm sure that we could probably interact with those things and we could come up with theories in light of even what we find in the Scriptures as to what's going on there, but I'm more interested in what is the essential cause of all the trouble? Why is it going on in any place? Others are more desperately longing to have some sort of reconciliation in their marriage. And I'm going to argue and contend that the warring that you see between any two nations is for the same reason that husbands and wives have trouble getting along, the same reason why children and parents have trouble getting along, The same reason why fellow church members have trouble getting along at times. Peoples in community don't get along. What is the answer? We all are longing for a measure of peace within ourselves. I mean, that's the cry of society. If ever we have an opportunity to speak the truth of Christ to the culture, it is today. When you look around, you find people that are begging for, longing for an answer for the issues of division, separation, greed, all of these things. And it really matters very little what the particular way in which it's expressed, whether it is anger or bitterness or jealousy or hatred or sadness, loneliness, misery, even greed. The root of all of these forms of suffering has everything to do with the state and condition of the human heart. Consider from James 4.1, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you. Your passions. Now you may be wondering at this point, why are you taking a picture of grief in Mary Magdalene and you're drawing an application in the introduction towards hatred and wars and strife? And here's the point. 
that all of these emotions that shield us from seeing God rightly and loving God appropriately and rejoicing as we ought to rejoice, that they're all these passions within the heart of man. It's the passions within our hearts that are the primary cause of all the trouble. And I would argue and maintain that every ounce of suffering and grief that human beings experience is directly related to our inability to live in subjection to God rather than our passions. It's not wrong to have passions. God's the one who's given us emotions. But when we're controlled by our passions rather than God and his word and his truth, it leads to grief and sin every time. It should not surprise us to see the unbelieving world at war in light of what God says to us. Isaiah 48, 22. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. So long as wickedness reigns, there will be no peace. And so what's the point, I ask, in bringing these things up in light of our text? What do controlling passions of the flesh have to do with these verses? Well, as I see and as I hope you will see in Mary Magdalene, the passions of the flesh, even passions that are demonstrated in the form of what appears to be a legitimate grief, can blind us to the truth. Even when it's staring us right in the face, even when the truth is speaking to us, we're blinded by it in light of these controlling passions. Mary Magdalene is a perfect portrayal to us of the desperate struggle of the world for peace and deliverance from heartache. And I argue this applies to those who have genuinely trusted in Christ as she had as well as the unconverted world, which is at this present time wallowing in its misery with no way of escape. And so, whether you're a Christian or not, let me ask you this. I'm not even going to ask you if there's difficulty or suffering in your life, because there is. We're just usually not that honest about it, either with ourselves or with others. There is misery. There is difficulty, if we're honest. I'm not going to ask you if there is. I'm going to ask you this. What is going to be the source of your deliverance from that grief? Where are you going to find a way of escape? Are you going to find true healing for your soul? But those questions would begin looking together. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Now we considered in the last message that Mary's sorrow, as well as the, all the sorrow in the life of a Christian, comes from theological lack of understanding. It's a theological problem. The text told us the disciples had yet to understand from the scriptures, which said that he must rise from the dead. So Mary needed to have an understanding of Christ in the scriptures. That was her primary need to see Jesus in his word. That's what she needed. And that's true. It remains true today. And that's a general explanation for her misery. It's generally true. And I would argue this with anyone who would ask. If you are sorrowful in your soul, the general explanation for your misery is that you're not seeing Jesus in his word. But it's also encouraging to note that our God is not cold and detached and only interested generally in our troubles. God sees the cause and the practical implications and all of the, the minutest details of our sorrows. We can say generally they don't see Christ in the scriptures. I could say to you in your sorrow now, you're discouraged because you're not seeing Jesus. Won't you just look to Jesus? That's true. But there are some real issues and real reasons and real struggles that God takes a particular notice and interest in. 
He takes an interest in our peculiar hurts and particular causes of pain. The Scripture tells us God has our hairs numbered and that He keeps our tears in a bottle and He's intimately aware of every aspect of our suffering. And this text, our text today, the source of Mary's pain, is very obviously and clearly wrapped up in death and loss. Death and loss. Surely her love for Christ was enough to motivate her to weep just because He died. If all she had was His death, she would be weeping. But she has more. She's looking into the tomb. She's seeing and being reminded of His death. Here's one aspect of her sorrow. And my question at that point is, is not death, this is how this applies to everyone in the world, is death not a universal cause for sorrow in the world? Tell me one person that death does not touch. Tell me one person in the entire world that's not going to be at some point in their life confronted with death or with the loss of someone they care about. And if you say, well, I can think of some people that could be so shielded and live in a bubble their entire life and never have to face it. Well, even if that were the case, they're going to face it when they die. None of us are going to be shielded from the sorrow of death. And the trouble is, the world is lying in death. It's lying in the grip of the evil one, the Scripture says. And this world of ours stands condemned. Everyone in it destined for death. This is a miserable and horrible reality. But the second, and we've already kind of seen that in Mary's sorrow from the week before, but now we come to look at it more particularly. The second and more precise cause of Mary's tears, the explanations we're given in our text, have to do with the loss and separation. And see, here's a little bit of a distinction here. We know Mary's not weeping because she thought they've taken his body. He's not risen from the dead like I was expecting. She wasn't expecting that. <coughs> so why is she so sad? Well, not only has the Lord died, her Lord died, but to her here it appears that he's been taken away and she cannot even access his body. And that would come across to her and the sorrow she's experiencing like salt in an already sore wound. She's already weeping. She's already sorrowful because he's died and now she's come to visit him and he's not there. And it just increases and multiplies and compounds her sorrow. And so we find here she is looking into this tomb in verses 12 and 13. Take together with me. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, just as an aside, I tend to think at at least a cursory glance, and perhaps this is something that deserves studying out more thoroughly, that Mary Magdalene did not recognize these two figures as angels. And I, I'm just suggesting that here now, kind of spontaneously, which is always dangerous, because of the fact that every time you find a person, a human being, in the presence of an angel and they know it's an angel, the angel has to say, be not afraid. Don't be terrified. And I say this as an aside because there are many people who like to imagine they've had interactions with angels and they'll brag about it even, but there's no sense of terror, of awe, of being cast to the ground in fear. And so I assume here these angels are presenting themselves in one way or another, as men, and that that's how she's interacting with them. Though that does bear our consideration, we could look at that further. But what we do begin to see here is not only God's interest in the particular ways in which we hurt, 
but also in the necessity of us determining the source of our pain. What do I mean by this? These angels, which are messengers, that's what an angel means. That's what the word means as a messenger from God. These angels are sent by God to ask her this very direct question. She sees the angels there and they ask her, woman, why are you weeping? Let me ask you something. Does that sound insensitive to you? They clearly know that the Lord has died and she's there weeping outside his tomb. If you were to approach someone and you were to find someone in a cemetery beside a loved one's grave and they were weeping, bawling their eyes out. Would you walk up to them and say, hey, why are you weeping? What's wrong with you? Is there a just cause for the pain that you feel? Is this an insensitive thing to ask? Is it not reasonable that she would be weeping outside the tomb of someone she loved? Is it not obvious to these angels what the cause of her sorrow was? Why is it then that they ask her? Why do you suppose? Well, let me suggest this to you. That although it is uncomfortable to do, and it often increases our sorrow in the moment, being forced to honestly diagnose the true source of our suffering is a necessary part of discovering the cure. You get what I'm saying here? Mary has to come face to face with the source of her sorrow. The question is put directly to her. God puts the question directly to you here and now in the sorrow, the grief that you have. Have you discovered where it's coming from? Or is it continually being buried and covered over and not addressed or dealt with? It's important that the truth of your hurt is uncovered, that you might find the cause of it. You see, we cannot simply speak the words to ourselves, be cured without actually dealing with the problem. And Mary, in answering them, reiterates for us what exactly the cause of her trouble is. Loss and separation. Her Lord Jesus Christ had died. And now, according to her, as far as she knows, his body's been taken away and she doesn't know where he's been taken to. <coughs> she has grief. Now, how many of us would be honest enough to admit that we're constantly ruled and controlled by either grief or anxiety? You see, the two, they kind of go together. They're kind of two sides of the same coin in one sense. You've got grief, which one simple definition of grief would be the idea of an overwhelming sense of having lost someone or something that's important to you. There's grief. Well, what's anxiety then? Anxiety is the fear of future grief. Anxiety is the fear of losing someone or something important to you in the future. And so I ask, can we at this point relate with Mary and the grief that she has or the anxiety that we might feel the way that she's feeling here in the future? And is there an answer to that grief and anxiety? Verse 14 tells us this. Having said this, having said to the angels, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid them. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Now, there are certain times in the reading of God's word where it is. I find it almost impossible not to be encouraged. I see a broken hearted, weeping woman, and then I see Jesus standing there meeting with her, coming to minister to her needs, meeting her in her distress. And I want to encourage you that today this should be a comforting thought that the Lord Jesus Christ takes an interest in your sorrow. 
And He has promised to do so. He has promised to do so. Jesus told us back in John 14, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Here we see Mary Magdalene, one He loves. He's coming to her, ministering to her hurt. It's such an encouraging thing that in the midst of her heartache, there He is. Now, we're given a further explanation of what exactly He's going to do for us when He does come to us and how He's going to do that. I want you to look with me just for a moment at John chapter 16. John chapter 16 and Jesus promising to send the Holy Spirit. This is, this is one of the things He says. And, and as we work through Jesus' interaction with Mary today, I want us to be looking for these things happening in their conversation. Begin reading at verse 16. Jesus says, a little while and you will see me no longer. Pause. So here's Mary Magdalene seeing him no longer, right? She's broken hearted because she's not seeing her Lord. She doesn't even know where to find his body. A little while and you'll see me no longer. And again, a little while and you'll see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you'll not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you'll not see me. And again, a little while and you'll see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Just immediately reminded in that text, Liam wasn't born yet whenever we covered that text. And now a beautiful baby boy. Rejoicing has come. The lamenting is over. The anguish is gone. And the value of what you have so far surpasses any anguish that you had at that time that there is this rejoicing. And now we're looking and finding Mary Magdalene still at the point of the lament and the sorrow and the weeping. And yet Jesus has promised. He has promised to meet with us in this way. And so He comes to her. And initially, perhaps... Veiling himself at first, although I don't believe so when we consider the context, but more on that in a moment. He comes to her in order to do what? To minister to her sorrow. To give her joy in the midst of her sorrow. Consider this. She doesn't see that it's the Lord. She sees a man and she's interacting with him. We're going on to see, but she does not know that it's the Lord. How often do you suppose that in the midst of your heartache and sorrow, the Lord has been watching you, loving you and ministering to your heart, even though you may be completely ignorant of what he's doing for you in that moment? How often do you suppose this happens? How often even in something as simple as you're downcast and someone else in the body of Christ reaches out to you and loves you? Is that not the Lord ministering to you through the body? An encouraging thing, the way that the Lord comes and begins ministering to her even before she realizes who it is. And so I want to ask, 
In light of the promises that we're looking at from John 14 and John 16, and what we see in Mary is your joy made full in sorrow by knowledge of the fact that Jesus promises to never leave or forsake you. It's one thing for us to say that kind of like a, a motto or something that we hold on to that's kind of abstract and it's not something that rules my heart. I know it's true He'll never leave me or forsake me, but there are times when I feel forsaken. There are times whenever my heart really is beaten down and I need something to take place in me, to change that about me. We need to be constantly reminded of this. I thought of an interesting parallel to Mary's condition here of her sorrow, her weeping. And consider this just for a moment from Acts chapter 7. Another example of Jesus' promise being fulfilled here. Acts chapter 7, we find this at the stoning of Stephen. Just listen along and consider this. Beginning in verse 54. We find now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Pause for just a moment. This is worth mentioning. Do you want to know why they're enraged and grinding their teeth at Stephen? Because he's preaching Jesus Christ from all of their Old Testament scriptures. That's what enraged them. He's saying to them, this Jesus has been in your law, your word all along, and you failed to see him. That's relevant in light of last week's message. It says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. How do I read that? Because we have kind of a contrast in our text today, at least as of yet, Mary has not seen the Lord. And yet here he is ministering to her. Stephen is facing death and stoning. And the difference is Stephen is seeing the Lord. But notice what's similar in both cases. Fascinating thing to notice. In our text, it's kind of interesting. And I don't think it's by accident that we say it says to us that she having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. Now, that, that's a, a very special word to find in this text. Why doesn't it just say she saw Jesus, but standing? And maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I'll tell you this. We find in the scriptures, we're told that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. And so whenever there's this picture, Stephen sees Jesus standing. The idea is that the Lord has such an vested interest in those whom he loves that whenever they're enduring suffering and heartache, He's so interested, almost as though he's standing, peering into what's going on. That's likely an anthropomorphism. Jesus doesn't need to stand up to see better. But you get the point. He's interested. He's very interested in the suffering of his people. And in this case, we find her completely unaware of the fact that the Lord has his keen eye. Upon her. Do you find that to be true? Are you aware of the fact that the Lord never takes his eye off of you? We sing his eye is on the sparrow. And I know that he watches 
me? Verse 15, we find this. She doesn't recognize the Lord. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Now, initially, here's what's fascinating. We find Jesus Christ asking her the same question that the angels did. Shouldn't surprise us at all. In fact, they are his angels. They were sent by him. They're there ministering to him. Here she comes. They're ministering to her, asking her, why are you weeping? This reemphasizes to us what I said earlier, the absolute necessity of honestly facing the source of our sorrow. Now, I want to be very clear about something at this point. Grieving over loss and separation and death is not inherently sinful. We're actually commanded in the Scriptures to mourn or grieve with those who are mourning. So it's never, never wrong that we grieve over loss. In fact, we find that it's possible for us to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And if the Holy Spirit can do something, I guarantee you it's not sinful. But the problem is, Whenever the controlling passion we call grief or whatever you want to fill in the blank with. Whenever a controlling passion blinds you to God, to Jesus Christ. Anything that's separating you from seeing Christ as he is. If that is left unchecked, I believe it leads to, if not is itself, sin. And we've got to see the relationship between grief and sin, because there would be no grief, there would be no loss, there would be no death, there would be no separation if not for sin. And we know Jesus has come into the world. Why? Because of sin. He came to die because of sin. He was buried in this tomb she's at because of sin. And see, rebellion to God has an awful cost. Jesus came to bore it and so to bear it. So here's what I'm telling you. We cannot begin to deal with grief biblically. Unless we realize that grief comes from death. We've got to understand that these things are intimately connected. Consider it this way. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says this. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Those of you who have endured severe grief, is sting a good word? You suppose you could say the sting, the pain, the hurt... The sorrow sting, the thing that makes death bad, there's sting involved. The sting of death is sin. You see, death stings. Why? Death stings because it is a permanent reminder that man is separated from God and under the judgment of God because of sin. And I wonder, just by way of application, are we those who face our own grief, our own misery, whatever it may be, with honesty. Have you ever come to ask? You see, there's a repetition going on here. The angels say, why are you weeping? Jesus says, why are you weeping? So much of the time, we're so busy covering up the fact that we are weeping that no one's even going to ask us why because we've masked ourselves so well that no one knows the real degree of our sorrow. Are we honest enough to ask ourselves before God why? Am I feeling this way? And no doubt I'm sure many of us, if not all of you, have at one point or another asked God, why am I feeling this way? Why am I discouraged or depressed? But yet the more important question is, have you answered honestly? 
Now, I believe if we were honest, perhaps many of us would be afraid to answer that question honestly. Because the answer to why I'm feeling this grief might include, in my own mind at least, an accusation against God, which reveals our displeasure with Him. If God is indeed sovereign, if He is in the heavens and does all that He pleases, if these things are so, and I'm grieving over something I'm experiencing, why didn't He stop this from happening? Why didn't God prevent this from happening? You see, being honest about how we feel in light of our discouragement must of necessity cause us to look at ourselves as being underneath God. Well, in our context, what is Mary's answer to this question? Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She says, it says, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Now, I'm not really going to get into this, but I'll just say this in passing. Some have suggested and made some assumptions about the Lord in light of the fact that Mary assumes that he or supposes that he might be the gardener. But the flow of thought and the context, I believe, seem more likely to indicate to us that she just simply thought he was the gardener because the tomb was in a garden. You remember this tomb belongs to Joseph of Arimathea and we find out in other scriptures that it was in a garden, presumably belonging to Joseph of Arimathea. If the tomb's in a garden and you see somewhere in there that you're not expecting to see, it's a, not a jump to assume or not a, a wild stretch to imagine this might be the person tending to this garden. I won't get into all the things that people suggest about that, but the primary point, I believe, of this expression that she supposed him to be the gardener is just telling us that she's unaware of who she's actually talking to. And so with that being the primary reason she says this, I want to ask together, why didn't Mary Magdalene know that this was Jesus? What exactly was it that was preventing Mary from seeing the Lord? Could, could you even imagine? I mean, the applications are almost endless to this. How many times have you been hurting and heard the word of God proclaimed to you and yet, and yet not heard from the God of the word? You know, it's possible to have to hear truth and not be hearing from God. How often have you read the scriptures time and time again? And then one time you read it and you've read this verse a thousand times and it comes alive to you. You hear it almost as though for the first time. You see, there's a spiritual activity taking place upon us when we come to hear truly from the voice of God. And yet, as of yet, she's not realizing that she's hearing from the Lord. I believe the obvious answer in our text as to why she mistakes him for the gardener, why she doesn't realize who this is, is that she's blinded by her own grief. I suppose it's possible that the Lord was hiding his true identity from her. We heard about that last week when we looked at Luke 24 and the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. Jesus, it says that they were, it's worded, it says that they were not able or they were kept from recognizing Him. That's the language. They were kept from recognizing Him. But here with Mary, I think it's much more likely that she was experiencing what many of us experience when we're in the middle of grief or sorrow or anger or bitterness, or any of these controlling passions. You know, it's not actually sinful to be angry. The Bible says be angry and sin not. So if you're commanded to be angry and sin not, the idea is don't let your anger take you into sin, which it does for us most of the time. 
And like anger or grief or any degree of sorrow or anxiety, we can be led into sin by it. So here with Mary, though, I believe we're seeing a woman who is so consumed by her troubles that she's unable to see the Lord even when he spoke to her. And when ruled by strong emotions, is it not true? When you're ruled by a strong emotion, can you imagine her there? Have you ever wept so hard that your vision was blurred and you couldn't see? Even if you just get punched by someone in the nose and your eyes water, you can't see through the tears. Well, in a like way, here she is moved by tears down her face, weeping. She can't see clearly what a picture this is. When you're moved by a strong emotion, your eyes get blurred, your senses are weakened, your reason, your ability to think is diluted. Your convictions end up being compromised. Something you once said, I'll never stop upholding this thing. Whenever one of these controlling passions take over, all of a sudden convictions get compromised. And the things we believe, our faith itself can be distorted. And I believe the constant state of this unbelieving world we're living in is exactly that. Constantly striving after and saying we want peace, we want prosperity, we want goodness in the world, and yet always ruled by vain passions. The focus of the unbelieving world is always upon their desires. And that itself is the primary hindrance to ever being delivered. Do you see that in Mary? Why is it she's not seeing the Lord? Because she's controlled and blinded by her grief. The very thing that's keeping her from seeing Him is her desire and broken heart and desire longing to see Him. Ephesians chapter 2, we should know this text well, but consider it in light of our thoughts now. Ephesians 2 in the first three verses. We find this. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. So here's what the unconverted world is like. Dead in trespasses and sins. That's what we were like. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now here we go. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I'm not for a second suggesting that Mary Magdalene was a child of wrath here. But what I am saying is that when these passions are controlling us, we need a kind of deliverance that was true of you when you were lost. And now as a Christian, you need the truth of God's word to deliver you from the passions which control you. That was true of Mary. Even something which is legitimate and good and like grieving over her Lord became a Blinding hindrance to seeing and hearing from Him. The constant repeated description of Mary in our text is that she was grieving, weeping. And the one thing which is most certain to keep you in a miserable state of grief is to have your focus controlled by the grief. You see, grief... Actually, let me suggest this to you. Happiness, being happy or joyful. If your goal is to be joyful, I don't believe you ever will be. If joy is your goal and you chase after joy, you're never going to arrive at it. Why is that? Because joy is a fruit. Joy is a side effect 
of having something. Joy is produced by substance. Something's got to produce the joy. And there's only one thing that can ever truly produce joy. If I'm pursuing joy, I'm never going to get there. But if I'm pursuing Christ and I have Him, I'll have joy. You see, the point is, so long as her focus is on the grief, she's not going to see the one who's able to deliver her from it. And so I say, whether we're talking about the lost world, the world which is at this moment separated from Christ and from God, or to those of us who are born again Christians, who have been or are now being consumed by hurts, being consumed by tragedies in life, what is the thing which is most essentially needed? What is the one thing which can deliver the miserable soul? We find in verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. The one thing that's most needed is the intervention of God Almighty. God alone. You see, it's God alone who's able to speak peace to the troubled soul. How many times have I interacted with people who were hurting and told them the truth and they don't hear it when I say it and it takes somebody else, but God must apply it. How many times have you seen someone who heard the gospel a thousand times? You and you didn't hear it until God applied it. The intervention of God to deliver from those controlling passions. That's what she needed. And Jesus said to her, Mary, Jesus has already been speaking to her. But with a word, I'm reminded of Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress, speaking at the, about the ploys of Satan. And there's a line in there that says one little word shall fail. you." One little word delivered Mary from her heartache and her grief, hearing her name from her Savior. That's what she needed. She needed this intervention of Christ. It is God alone who can speak peace to a troubled soul. It is God alone who can cause our eyes, which are blurred by grief, to be lifted away from grief and sin. And we see Jesus doing it by speaking her name. Isaiah 43 and verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. The greatest need for a troubled soul is to be reminded that you are his or it is to be told for the very first time that you are his. Have you heard Jesus saying your name, Mary? And you see the wonder of this glorious revelation. He says, Mary to her. And she turns to him and says, teacher, the greatest glory of this is that we see that comes in the light of this idea of redemption, redemption. That's the point there from Isaiah 43. I have redeemed you. There's something to do with redemption that matters in this revelation. She turns to him and says in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. It's as though when he says her name, a trumpet goes off in her soul that echoes through her heart and she immediately recognizes Him for who He is. There's something supernatural taking place. Something she wasn't hearing when He spoke before. Now all of a sudden she knows who it is. What happened? What changed here? Did Mary just finally piece it together? How did she come to realize this? 
She's delivered from the grief and the sorrow in an instant. And she declares at once with no explanation. Teacher. And I wonder, have you heard him speaking to you in this way? We'll come back to that in a moment. But for now, just consider, move along with me. Verse 17. After she proclaims, she realizes this is my Lord, my teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This verse suggests to us what her immediate desire was at hearing this, hearing her name from her Lord, that the tears have been dried up. Maybe she kept crying, but tears of joy, I suppose, were not told. But she sees him that which she was unable to see just a moment before she's able to see. And the immediate result of that was that she had a burden, a desire to cling to him with everything she had. Uh, Can't hardly blame her. And you have to realize this woman, Mary Magdalene, if she had seven evil spirits controlling her before, you've got to imagine that she didn't have a lot of people she was close to before Jesus came on the scene. And as a woman, it's even more unlikely that she had people who had genuinely cared about her. This is her Lord, her master, her dearest friend, the one who delivered her, the one she loved. And she sees him finally in the midst of her grief and she just wants to grab him. Now, you can go and read theologians that will try to explain to you why it was so necessary. And even some have gone as far as to say that she was not allowed to touch him. And that's worth investigating and reading into. But I believe the primary point being communicated here is that do not cling to me that he wasn't able to stay with her. I don't know for sure. And maybe we could research this together. Come and tell me if you have an answer. Was it absolutely impossible that she could touch him at all after this? Well, maybe. Or maybe he's saying to her, I still have to go. I'm going to ascend to the Father. You can't cling to me. I can't stay in your immediate presence. I'm still ascending to the Father. Maybe both. But her longing for Him in this way is the essence of real spiritual understanding. You see, all her grief, all Mary's sorrow had been washed away and replaced by this longing. And yet, as I say, it was not to remain that way at this time. And I suppose... The most important thing for us to understand about that expression and going to ascending to the Father is this. Jesus is risen from the dead. We find in the book of Colossians and in Hebrews, he's the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn among many brothers. What does that mean? It means that no man had ever yet risen from the dead to never die again. And as the first man to do that on our behalf, he's ascending to the Father on our behalf. In order that we might as well as men and women be raised from the dead to never die again. But then he commissions her. And he tells her to go and tell my brothers I'm ascending to the father. But notice this and this is glorious and it's wrapped up together in this expression that he is ascending to the father. As he says, ascending to my father and your father, my God And your God. In other words, here's the point. In light of Jesus' resurrection, 
His Father, God the Father. He was able to say that in a unique way as the second person in the Godhead. He is the Son, the Father. And Him have this relationship. And now because of Him and what He's done in His substitution, we forever get to say our Father too, our God too, in a like way as He says it. Why? Because of our relationship and union to Him. And then finally we see in verse 18, What she does, he says to her, go and tell my brothers. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Finally, we see her going immediately to the the others, what she had seen and what she had heard. Here's the point for us. She, having had all of her grief and sorrows cured, her miseries have been healed, immediately becomes a messenger to all those still in such a miserable condition. The rest of the disciples still have, they don't understand He's risen from the dead. They are carrying the grief that she was carrying. And when it's delivered of her, she's burdened to go and obey her Lord and telling them what she had received. That's a charge to all of us. That we who have seen the Lord, if you've been called by His name, if you've heard His voice saying your name and been redeemed from sin, you've been delivered from grief, you too have been commissioned by the Lord to tell others what He's done for you. And yet, like Mary Magdalene, did they believe her? At her word, did they believe her? Some people say, well, it's because she was a woman and women didn't have much credibility in society, perhaps. Rather impossible thing to believe apart from the Holy Spirit of God. And see, what you might find is discouraging. The Lord says, go tell the brothers. She goes and tells the brothers and they doubt her. They don't believe what she said. That could be discouraging. And yet they would go on to believe why she reported to them. And Jesus, we are going on to find, is going to visit them Himself. That's exactly what's needed in our commission, our declaration of the truth. Jesus has risen from the dead. Someone says, I don't believe that. I understand, but it's true. And when the Holy Spirit of God tells them it's true, in the same way He told you it's true, they will believe. You're called to go and tell, and God must be the one to communicate it to their heart. And a lot of these things, I believe we're right in concluding. Conclusion of the thought is it is true that the greatest need in all the world, the greatest need in light of all the world's troubles is to see and hear from Jesus Christ. To know that this Jesus, that He really is the only one who's able to remove the sting from death. He's the only one able to remove the power of the law. We read from that Romans text earlier that the sting of death is sin. And the power of death is the law. Is there one who's able to deliver from those? The answer is yes. Yes. As a matter of fact, I want to close by going and reading with you from 1 Corinthians 15. Let's read this section together. Beginning in verse 50, Paul writes, you you have to understand the entire argument up until this point is that Jesus is risen from the dead. 
That's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 15. And at this point, this is the application. It, none of these things we're about to read are even remotely possible unless He rose from the dead. And so here we're seeing in light of His resurrection, this is the hope that we have. In light of the sting, the grief of sorrow and death. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall all we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if he's still dead, then there's still sting in death. There's still power in the law that looks at you and me and says, sinner deserving of hell. Wrath, judgment against us because of the law and death. But Jesus' resurrection says that sting's gone. The grief and the sorrow of guilt against a holy God is removed by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is Mary coming to understand all that I'm telling you here? Probably not. But she knows her Lord is alive once again. And she's wanting to cling to Him, to trust in Him, and to press on following Him. She's seen Him risen. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, in light of this, in light of the sting of death being gone, in light of the power of sin being gone, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What a thing to know. Jesus Christ speaks the glory of his gospel to your soul, whether you're lost or saved. You're reminded once again, he died for me. I can live for him. I can be immovable. My labor's not in vain. What deliverance from grief is in this? That my God sees me, loves me, and he's guiding me. And there's eternal life at the end of this road. This labor's not in vain. He's doing something in me. I'll tell you this. This is the argument of Paul in that text. But if that's not true, everything is vain. It's all vain if that's not true. And so we're left in kind of a perhaps difficult situation. What are we going to do in light of these things? Are we going to be grieved by the fact that we have difficulties that we face? Oh, yes, we will. But what are you going to do with that grief? Try to mask it, cover it up, not acknowledge it. If I say to you today, why are you weeping? Why is your soul cast down? Why are you not living victoriously as we see Christians throughout the ages? Why are you weak? Be honest. Answer God. I need these things which are blinding me from seeing Him to be removed. And that happens 
through the Spirit of God, we could pray with David and say, Oh God, search my heart. Show me the wicked ways that are in me. Teach me Your Word, Your ways. I pray that you would be encouraged to look to Jesus. And if nothing else, as a Christian, be reminded of this. He's watching you right now. In whatever state of despair you find yourself, your first thought should be, my God sees me. My Lord Jesus Christ is watching me. He knows what I'm doing and what I'm going through. What a convicting thought at times. What an encouraging thing as well. And to the lost, He sees you. And He's watching you. And He calls upon you to repent and believe the Gospel and be saved. That I'll ask you to bow with me and we'll close in prayer. <coughs> Heavenly Father, O Lord, You are good. I thank You for the goodness of Your Word and the promises which are in it. Lord, help us. Lord, to be grieved by the things that grieve You, but not so consumed by our heartache that we don't see You. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we press through your word to grow in our knowledge of who you are. Father, I ask that these thoughts would remain with us, that we would not soon forget them. Lord, give us the grace to go and share with others the name of the one who's given us life, the one who is risen from the dead. I praise him. Thank you for him. I ask this in his name. Amen.